What can you learn from the movie Jaws about copywriting? And what about magic? Are there things that we could learn about copy from the experts in sleight of hand? And did you know there's a book about persuasion written by a famous mentalist that is so good, several expert copywriters won't tell you about it because they want to keep the information in it all to themselves? Hi, I'm Rob Marsh, one of the founders of the Copywriter Club. And on today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, my co-founder Kira Hug and I interviewed copywriter and email newsletter entrepreneur John Bejokovic. We talked to John about how to build a business selling books on Amazon, what it takes to build a niche business using email, and how to control attention so that you can better persuade people to take action. And yes, while we were talking, I accidentally mentioned that secret book that copywriters are apparently not supposed to talk about. You want to stick around and listen to the episode so that you can find out what it is. But first, this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground. It is truly the best membership for copywriters, content writers, and given the price point, it's also the best value for everything that you get. Let me just give you an idea of what it includes. First, there's a monthly group coaching call with Kira and me, where you can get answers to your questions, advice for overcoming any business or client or writing challenge that you might have, any struggle that you're going through. There are weekly copy critiques, almost weekly, uh, where we give you feedback on your copy or your content or anything that you want me to take a look at. We've had people submit uh, copy that was written by somebody else that they've been hired to rewrite and they just wanted ideas on things that we would do differently. There have been people who have submitted their own copy, copy that they've written for their own websites, their own emails, uh, their own videos, as well as copy that they've written for their clients. We look at all of it and give you feedback so that you can get better and hopefully deliver a better product to your clients. There are regular training sessions on different copy techniques and business practices designed to help you get better. In fact, if you're listening to this podcast, podcast on the day it comes out. There's a training like that tomorrow where we're going to talk about minimalism in your business, and that will be uh, happening live in the underground. And we're also adding a new monthly AI tool review where we'll be sharing a new AI tool that we're excited about or a technique or a prompt that you can do with AI to get more done. And we're going to be doing some regular networking events where we will introduce you to other copywriters, help you build your network, these are the kinds of people who not only can help share leads or ideas or give you feedback or, uh, you know, accountability, critiques, all of that stuff, but really just become the support network for your copywriting business. All of that is happening in the underground every month. And that's on top of like the massive library of trainings and templates. The community is just is amazing. If it sounds like something you want to try out, go to thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU, and let's get started. And with that, let's get to our interview with John. I guess a lot of people have a roundabout way of getting into this field, but for me, it was that I kind of hoped always to do some sort of writing, but I strayed very far from it. I did math and IT and in college, and then I had a job in a proper IT company after that. And uh, I'd always hated it. I was always looking forward to somehow getting away from the office, from a corporate environment. And I knew somebody who was writing for The Motley Fool at the time. And uh, he was doing front-end content, writing those posts that go up, talking about different stocks. I know nothing about stocks, but I convinced myself that I could write uh, 
you know, 500 word piece about stocks, about whatever Apple is doing at the time. And so I took a week off of my IT job. I sat at home. I managed to write one 500 word piece that I got paid 50 bucks for. And I said, all right, I'm going to quit my job. I can do this. I feel like I can, um, you know, do this regularly. I was living in Hungary at the time. It was a much cheaper cost of life than, um, than it is now because, um, Hungary was developing and it wasn't so expensive. So I figured, okay, if I can write one or two of these articles per day, it's not great money, but I can, I can make it work. And I started with that and it was going very well because the Motley Fool had an insatiable appetite for content. And I got down to being able to write one or two articles per day within about a month or two. And then it all collapsed. I don't know, something happened to them. Uh, they fired all of their freelance writers who were just kind of writing um, all of their outsourced freelance writers. And then I was left uh, with basically a situation where I didn't want to go back to my IT job, where I convinced myself that I could write. And so I started writing books, little books on Kindle. And I just started writing these alternative health books. I'd write one or two per month because it was basically the fastest way that I figured that I could make any money by the end of this month. And that started going pretty well. Uh, and then I was doing that for about a year. Eventually, I realized that I'm never going to get rich by writing little $2 books on Kindle. And I gradually transitioned into copywriting. But I think by that time, I'd gotten good enough at writing. I'd gotten enough experience. I'd learned a little bit about email marketing. And I went on Upwork and I said, um, you know, if you need some email copy written, I can do this for you. And somebody started hiring me. And it's been a slow but steady climb since then. Okay. So I'm, I'm really interested in uh, all those sort of really three stages, right? Um, starting with content, um, I just a, a couple quick questions, because obviously a lot of our listeners are doing content, that kind of content. But what was it that, what was your approach to that content so that it was good content, right? Um, I'm asking this question really poorly, but... Did you have a formula that you were writing with or a structure that you were uh, writing with or a, an end goal in mind when you would sit down to write the content that made your content worth reading? So I think, I think that that's a great question. I think for me, if anything, I have the problem that I'm a perfectionist when it comes to writing. And so I'm able to fiddle with content for days, you know, and this, this was in many ways throwaway content for The Motley Fool because it was effectively news, you know, and they didn't need perfect stuff. And they, in many ways, had a formula for what kind of structure they needed. And in the beginning, I tried to get creative and I tried to tell little stories. And it became very obvious very quickly that they basically needed news reporting, you know, some context, tell me what's the news, give me some context and take some sort of an angle. And I think that just sticking to that formula, which was necessary at that time, and swallowing my ego enough to realize that this is not an opportunity to really be creative, to express my desire to be a great writer. Um, I think that in the end produce, helped me produce content that actually worked. Uh, and I think I learned there that actually a lot of the stuff that I would instinctively want to do because I like to write doesn't actually belong there. And that people who were reading these things weren't looking for my cleverness or for my stories. They were actually looking for 
those specific things that the Motley Fool formula already was giving them. And so if, you know, every content situation is different, there are situations in which you're writing something that's very, that requires much more um, creativity or much more personality, but you have to be aware of that. And then, and if it's not required, then I think you just have to swallow your pride and do what the situation demands of you. How do you determine that? Because I think that is a really big, well, I don't know if it's a big mistake, but it's a common mistake for many of us where we're like, this is going to be more creative and I'm so clever. I've got to like pack it with creativity. But sometimes, like you said, the job doesn't really call for that. So what are some good questions or even guidelines you think through, especially for newer writers to think through that before they pack a project? So I would say it's two things. If you're working for yourself, then you can experiment and you can see what what works for you. You know, if you're doing something on your own website or blog or newsletter, then, you know, try it out and see what works. And maybe you're going to hit on a new formula that nobody else said would work, but ends up working great. On the other hand, if you're working for a client, then my approach has always been that you have to set expectations very clear, very clearly, very early on. Right. And so I had a you know, I'm not applying for jobs anymore. I'm not trying to really win copywriting gigs. If, you know, if I do take on any copywriting work, it's people who are coming to me because we worked together before. But before when I did, you know, I used to apply to, you know, one or two copywriting jobs a day once when I started this. And my strategy for applying for a job was always looking for job postings that were very clear about what they were looking for. And I, I wanted to make sure that these were jobs that were matched up with what I was willing to do or what I, what I could do. And when I would apply to those jobs, I would send in samples that were very clearly demonstrating that I would do exactly the kinds of things that the job poster was advertising for, or the client was advertising for. And I think that's really key. You don't want to put yourself into a situation where you write something, you deliver that copy, and then you get the feedback from the client of saying, what the hell is this? You know, or how, how do we get, the, the, I, this is not what I was expecting. Basically, you know, before we even start work, um, you have, you know, they have to make it clear to you or you have to make it clear to them. You have to agree in a way of what's, what is this going to look like ultimately? And the best way to do that is they show you exact samples of what they want done, or you show them exact samples of what you've done before. And you say, ultimately your thing is going to look something like this. Are you okay with that? And if not, let's discuss that now rather than, you know, two weeks later after I've worked on this and, you know, you're under a deadline and, uh, and they have their own production issues and everybody's not going to be happy if, if those issues come up later. Take us inside the world of Kindle books. Uh, you know, I know you, you said ultimately you couldn't uh, create a career out of it, but obviously it was working for a while and, and you're creating something that customers wanted or readers wanted. Tell us a little bit about that process and what you were doing there. Sure. So I, I found somebody, I don't even remember the guy's name, but he basically, I think there was a period of time when there was a Kindle gold rush and when people could really write books on Kindle and really make good money because it seemed like there were all of these tricks and, and, uh, strategies for getting into the number one position on any given category. And there were a lot of people who were selling and there were all of these different things you could do. By the time that I got into it, there was definitely an opportunity 
still there. And I just followed somebody else's system. And basically the guy said, go on Kindle, look at categories of, um, of books that are selling well, where there's clearly demand, but there's not an overwhelming amount of competition. So that if you look at the top 10 books, you can see that there's demand for those books. But if you look at the number 50 bestseller in a category or a number 100 bestseller in a category, you see that they're not selling that many copies. And that means that you can go in there and potentially write something and get on the bestseller list right away only just by selling maybe one or two copies a day. And so that's what I did. I, I went on Amazon. I researched which categories are selling. I came up with, I don't know, 15, 20 different options. I found that sweet spot. And then I picked something that seems somehow interesting to me. And at that moment, for whatever reason, that was aromatherapy. That was essential oils. And I said, okay, like this is something that I'd heard about. Actually, the reason that I think I was interested in aromatherapy, since your audience is copywriters, there was the you know famous copywriter Gary Halbert, and he had some newsletter issue in which he talked about how he created, I think, a new perfume just by walking around Beverly Hills and seeing somebody selling essential oils. And he mixed together something and put up an ad in the, I don't know, LA magazine or something like that. And this was a new business opportunity business that he had created out of nothing. And so when I saw essential oils and aromatherapy on Amazon, I was like, oh, okay, this is something I'd always been curious about. And I just got into it. I, you know, brainstormed a few book titles. Um, I was thinking about how can I create books quickly and still have a certain level of quality to them. And so the idea that I hit upon was basically having essential oils for specific conditions, whatever, head headaches, allergies, and so on, whatever essential oils are used for popularly, I would have a tiny little book for that specific topic. And that meant that I could reuse a lot of content between books. A lot of the stuff about essential oils generally could be reused between books. And then I would have specific um, sections of the book that were unique to whatever the topic was. So for headaches, there would be essential oils that were particularly good for those headaches. And then there would be individual recipes and that stuff could be reused. And I think that's in general, a very good strategy where, you know, the you have to find ways to reuse a lot of your content and to, um, to make the stuff that you've written work for you, you know, specifically if you're going to be making money selling Kindle books at $2 a piece. Um, one thing that I learned is that, <clears throat> I'm so sorry, I think Amazon is actually a fantastic place to sell books and to get yourself exposed. And so I would recommend that to anybody. Um, one thing is that at that time, I didn't know about email marketing. So I think it took me very long. I was selling literally hundreds of copies of my books per month. And these were buyers who would buy this book once. And that was that. And uh, only later did it occur to me that, or not occur to me, but I re read somewhere that, oh yeah, I should put something at the back of this book telling people to get onto my email list. And then the only thing I could think of at the time was to pro promote my subsequent book. I wasn't doing daily emailing where I could have a much higher priced offer. But um, had I known that back then, I think it could have been a business where all I would do is keep pumping out new books and then promoting other offers on, on my email list, including my other books. Um, but that was a learning process. But um, I would advise anybody still, I still think that writing a Kindle book is a fantastic thing to do. Even if you write a single Kindle book, and it can be much faster and much easier than 
you think it is. And I think regardless of what stage you're at, having a book, even if it's really an expanded, you know, PDF, uh, just having a book on Amazon gives you an enormous amount of cachet and, uh, and standing, even if you're a new writer and, uh, and it helps you build an email list and it helps you with clients who want to hire you. And it helps you with actual experience writing something and putting something out. So it's something that I still very much recommend. My only um, extra thing that I would add in there is, you know, get people onto an email list because without that, you are handicapping yourself severely. Could you speak to, do you feel comfortable speaking to the algorithm uh, today within that space? Uh, I know this is, you're talking about years ago, but are you still publishing on there? I mean, my my books are honestly still on Amazon. They're still selling selling a few hundred bucks worth of copies every month, which is pretty nice because I haven't touched them in five or seven plus years. And I do have one book at, under so all of those you know aromatherapy books were written under a pen name, but I do have one book that's out on my own name that's that's about copywriting, and that book also still sells. Um, I don't honestly know much about the Amazon algorithm, and frankly, I don't stress a lot about it. My, my, my strategy has always been not to worry about algorithms and just focus on creating good content, getting people engaged via my email list. And then I figure that I can always get whatever benefits of the algorithm, whatever platform it is, simply by having an engaged email list and sending people to my content regularly. So um, one thing is that on Amazon, they have ads now, and I guess it's become a huge part of Amazon's business. I think if you do have, let's say, if you have a copywriting book that's promoting or a book about writing or a book about any other topic, but under your own name, it's promoting you as an individual, as a writer, and it's sending people to your list. And these are people who could become potential clients or who who could become potential, let's say, high ticket customers for you. Then I think the running ads to promote your book on Amazon is a no-brainer because basically it means that probably you're going to break even selling your book. Maybe you're going to pay Amazon a little bit to sell your book, but still that means you're getting people who've read through your book who probably are going to join your list who are some of the highest quality clients, leads you're ever going to get. And on top of that, every book that you sell via ads on Amazon is going to make it that much more likely that one another copy of your book is going to sell organically. So um, again, I don't stress out about the Amazon algorithm, but what I do do is I run ads for some minuscule amount of money every month. And that means that my book keeps selling. And that means that Amazon, I guess, keeps slightly promoting my book organically. And then also, since I do have an email list every so often, every month or two months, I do just write an email at the end of that email, attack on um you know, a, a link to my book. And every time a few copies of my book gets sold, it gets, again, it jumps up a little bit in the in the rankings and the higher it is in the rankings, the more likely it is it's going to sell organically. So just by these very caveman-like tactics, you know, the book is stuck around, it's sold and people keep getting onto my list via the book, which is really my main goal. That's great. And so when, at this point, you decided to kind of pivot and shift to Upwork, but how did you make that decision? Like, how do you know when it's time to stop focusing here and then focus elsewhere and make that pivot? 
I think that's a great question. I don't really have. I think it's an emotional thing where you know you start to feel it and you start to feel dissatisfied or limited. At the same time, I I try to follow that smart advice of like de-risking and not being very impulsive. I'm very, I think I'm impulsive by nature. I tend to make a lot of stupid decisions. Um, I try to stop myself from that. So you know, like I told you, when I was thinking about quitting my IT job, I took a week off from my job. I took an actual, actual vacation days to sit at home and work, you know? And so I think having a little bit of a, I don't know what you would call it, a small bet, an easy test or something like that, where you don't dive in without having some sort of validation that it's going to work or that you can do this. You can stand it emotionally that you can actually perform the work. I think all of those things are, um, are smart. And then ultimately you just kind of have to, dive in, you know, so regarding Upwork, I wasn't in a brilliant situation. I was basically writing these books on Amazon and I'd gotten to a place where basically I couldn't make any more money than I had made. I'd, I'd gotten to some plateau because it seemed like I would write every tiny little new book and it would sell well for a while and then kind of taper off. And the cumulative sales that I was making were basically trending down just at the pace of the new books that I could put out. So it was clear to me that this wasn't going to work the way that I was doing it. And I was thinking about what my other options were. I'd realized that, you know, I'd gotten writing skills. I'd learned a little bit about marketing. I learned a little bit about email marketing specifically. And I thought, okay, I'd actually done some Upwork freelancing before as a programmer since I, you know, had this IT background. So I knew that there was this opportunity that you could get paid. And I said, okay, let me just change my profile on Upwork to say I'm a copywriter. I think I applied for some jobs. I managed to win something for, I don't know, 30 bucks. And I finished that job in the first week or in the weekend. And I said, okay, this is, this is fine. I can keep doing this. And I think I kept doing it. And eventually I realized that, you know, within the first month, I started making more money as a freelance copywriter on Upwork than I had been making monthly from my Amazon books. And I said, okay, I'm going to start doing this from now on. And so a little bit of, um, a little bit of a gut feeling, a little bit of tip, you know, putting your, your toes into the water and then finally diving in. I think that's the, the best recipe I have. Let's talk a bit about email. Uh, you have a daily list. It, it's kind of about copywriting, but it's also kind of not about copywriting. It's, you know, about persuasion and a lot of other uh, sort of deeper things. And then you also have, uh, I think, a weekly list that you send out to in the health market. Uh, maybe you have other lists in addition to that. I don't know. But talk about just your philosophy around email, daily emailing, or what you're trying to do with your list on Beehive as well. Sure. So the, the things I'm trying to do with those two newsletters are entirely separate. Um, my daily email I was, when I was really working as a freelance copywriter, I was really trying to position myself as an email expert. And the work that I was getting on Upwork would be emails. And I would write, I don't know, five, 10, 15, 20 emails per month for various clients. And that's nice. But I realized that if I really want to be an email copywriter, I should be writing emails every day. And so I just started out as that. And I had various incarnations of my daily email newsletter where, you know, I basically, it was aping what I was, what I'd seen other people do specifically Ben Settle, who I think at that time was still 
there was, you know, this was maybe around 2016, 2017 at that time. Uh, daily email was still in some way not as established as it is today. And I feel that today it's become completely commonplace that, yeah, you want to email every day. You want to have share your own personality. You want to have a little stories. You want to make it fun. But back then it was still not taken for granted in, in as, as much. And so what I started doing was basically aping his thing, which was, you know, write a little email, have a little story, share some sort of a takeaway and potentially promote something at the end. Um, ultimately for me, what I was doing was a sandbox for the things that I was learning as a copywriter, the stuff that I wanted to practice, the stuff that I wanted to do. And in many ways it stayed like that. So at this point I'm making a nice income from that daily email list because I have some courses, I promote some affiliate stuff and it's become something that I'm making, you know, the kind of money that I wasn't making as a freelance copywriter for the first five years of my career. And yet I'm not really looking at my list as a business, you know, which is probably stupid, but I think one of the reasons I've managed to stick with it is that I'm actually treating it first and foremost as a learning opportunity, as a sandbox for myself. I'm writing down stuff that I find interesting that I want to integrate into my own marketing, into the stuff that I'm writing. And in some ways I feel like, you know, I def that definitely turns off some people because in some ways my list, I think people sense that it's not hundred percent serious because I'm doing sometimes stuff, which is a little bit tongue in cheek and a little bit unprofessional. But I think other people resonate with it specifically for that reason. And I think also some people just get value out of the the fact that I'm basically teaching myself and by proxy others learn from that. Now, the other list that I have, which is a health list, I'm trying to build that up into, you know, right now there's this newsletter opportunity where independent of daily email lists, I feel like there's been a huge growth over the past couple of years of interest in newsletters like the morning brew and uh, milk road and so on, where, you know, if you can pick a specific niche and just write a niche specific newsletter, that is a business in itself. And that's basically what I'm trying to do with that health newsletter. That said, I'm definitely taking stuff that I've learned from the direct response space and from my daily email. And I'm trying to integrate that by writing a newsletter. That's also fun. I mean, that's, hardly reinventing the wheel because I feel like if you look at big time newsletters like the morning brew, what they're basically doing is daily news, but infused with some pop culture references and some puns and some jokes and quizzes, basically lightening it. And, you know, in the direct response world, we might say infotainment, but there it's just making it fun. And that's, that's the attitude I'm taking with my, um, with my own health newsletter. But that said, I'm looking at the health newsletter, as a business, a long-term business, but still as a business, whereas my daily marketing list is much more of a, I don't know, again, the best way I would describe it is just as a sandbox where I write about stuff that's interesting to me. And that's, you know, you say it's not about copywriting. First and foremost, it was at some point where I was really writing about, you know, I was, you guys have had, I think, Paris Lampropoulos on, and he has this book list of 13 books and his advice is to read those books five times and for years really i was doing that i was going through those books cycling through those books and taking notes and finding something new in them each time and i would write about i would write emails about those things you know and so there was a time when my list was very heavy about 
you know, stuff that I'd found in Robert Collier's letter book or, you know, in, in scientific advertising. But in times I feel like, okay, I've gotten a little, four or four times reading, whatever. Somebody says seven times you got to read scientific advertising, you know, but I think for me, four times is enough. Haven't done but, that yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I keep finding new stuff every time I read one of those books. So I think it is worthwhile. But eventually, I also got interested in other stuff, and so that's when you know I started re reading more about just general persuasion stuff, or broader magic, um, con artists, or door-to-door -door sales, all of stuff which has, in many ways, overlap with direct response copywriting, but that's clearly not the same as well. So it's not specifically about headlines or or A/B testing and so on. So. Um, I think my list has evolved as my interests have evolved. It's it's interesting you say that because I think the very first thing that I ever read that you wrote, and I, I don't remember exactly how I found it or how I got on your list, but it was that you don't read copywriting books anymore and instead you're reading things like Darren Brown and you know mentalism and that kind of thing. And so um, just you mentioning that sort of reminds me of, uh, that was I think one of the triggers where I was like, oh, uh, that also interests me. I, I want to pay attention to, to what John's saying about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the Darren Brown book, anybody who is interested in persuasion or even if you're just straight up uh, a copywriter who only wants to focus on copywriting, I feel like that book is gold. And when I wrote an email about how I liked that book and I recommended it, Somebody, this guy who is a successful business opportunity marketer, he wrote me this joking reply and he said, you know, haven't you heard the news? This is the kind of this, there's a taboo on talking about this book because it's uh, too valuable and it's not something that you want to share with the masses, you know? So that's, well, yeah. So we're going to have to cut this from the interview. Yeah, so exactly. yeah nobody hears it. <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. So just to get this accurate, the newsletter, the health newsletter is kind of, you're looking at it like a long-term business play. Like it's not necessarily bringing in revenue today. Is that right? Or is it's it? Honestly, it's, it started to bring in revenue. I started at the, at the beginning of this year. The first few months was just um, figuring out the content and, you know, where I'm getting, basically, again, it's my newsletter is think of Think of the morning brew. So it requires a lot of curating of stuff, figuring out what's relevant, and then writing that up in a way that is actually interesting for people to read. And that took me a few months to do, you know, to figure out a system for keeping tabs on what's happening in that specific market, and then also figuring out how I can present that to an audience that's interesting. And then the next few months was about growing the list and figuring out some sort of a system where my list will grow regularly without me doing too much regular work to make it grow. And then I've managed to figure that out. And now I've gotten to a place where, where I'm thinking about monetization. And uh, actually today is the very first ad paid ad that I'm running in that newsletter where somebody's paying me a little bit of money to run an ad. I've also promoted some affiliate stuff. And I'm actually going to expand that same newsletter uh, into a weekly newsletter where I'm going to be promoting offers every, I'm sorry, that same weekly newsletter into a daily newsletter. So I'm going to be promoting stuff there every day. And I'm hoping that, you know, within the next month, it's going to start bringing in some more, some more significant revenue. I mean, again, 
um, I feel like creating books in that little niche that I'm in the, with that newsletter, writing books on Amazon would be a great way of getting people onto that newsletter as well as an offer for people who are on my list. So it could be kind of a flywheel thing where, you know, I create an offer, put it on Amazon, sell it to people who are on my list, drive up the book on Amazon. And in the meantime, also promote some affiliate stuff. So, um, I feel like I have a pretty clear vision of how I could, how I could grow this and monetize this from where I'm at. Could, could you break it down? And before we move on from that, could you break it down? Like you kind of mentioned three phases and I think the first phase is pretty clear, but I just think this is a great opportunity for all of us to, especially with AI tools today, to go into new niches that are, are maybe in need of some type of newsletter and do exactly what you're doing. Uh, so I guess what are some key points we should think about if we're interested in pursuing this path? Um, if you're thinking about creating a newsletter, then I would say, I think, again, there's no golden rule. I guess my best advice would be find something on that intersection of something that can make you money and that you can stomach doing every day. So I don't think that it needs to be an absolute passion. And I think that maybe by picking an absolute passion, you're more likely to ruin your absolute passion than to create a viable business, especially if you have to write about it every day or every week for God knows how long. One, one thing that I keep repeating and something that I've told people on my list over and over is that if you're starting a new project, the way that I look at it is I always ask myself, would I be okay doing this for the next five years? It doesn't have to take five years and it can be successful much sooner than that. But if you are repelled by the idea of still working on this within five years, then in my experience, it's best not to get started at all. Because if you're hoping that this is going to somehow work out within the next six months, or you're going to cash out in the next year, and that is really the frame of mind that you're coming at it with, then best not get, not to get started at all, because odds are it's going to take longer than that. And um, so my my recipe is kind of going back to that same thing on, on Amazon. Figure out something that's popular enough where there is interest, where you can see that potentially it's a an opportunity that's that's both current and future where it's there's interest now and it's likely to grow and ideally where it's not cr so crowded that you can't get in or niche down so that's one half of the equation the other half of the equation is just is this something that's interesting enough to you that you can imagine actually doing it you know for the next five years so you know five or six years ago with a friend we created um uh, this was in 2017 when it was the crypto boom. And we created a news website about um, crypto companies, you know, companies that were launching their own coins. And the fact is, I really couldn't care less about crypto. I think at that time, it was kind of like a, a hot topic. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, how it's going to revolutionize the world. And in some ways, I managed to, managed to trick myself into thinking like, yeah, okay, this sounds pretty cool and I could get interested. But I really don't care about crypto, you know, even though I, again, have a background in IT and I think the technology side of it is super interesting, but I just don't care, right? And so today, I, I don't think anybody would get into crypto unless you're super, super dedicated about crypto because it seems to be a shrinking opportunity, at least in terms of if you want to create a newsletter, I feel like public interest in crypto is maybe waning, maybe it's going to come back, but it's definitely not a red hot opportunity. Plus, again, it depends on what um, what your personal interests are. On the other hand, I think if you were 
around a year ago and looking to start a newsletter, then, you know, if you wanted to get into AI, it would have been brilliant. You know, I mean, a lot of people did get into AI. A lot of people did start AI newsletters at the same time I started my health newsletter. And now those AI newsletters are worth six or seven figures, you know, something that people created literally six or eight months ago. So, um, yeah, that, that's my best answer again. Um, you know, I, I think if somebody were to come to me and, you know, we could have a conversation about what their interests are, I might be able to give them better advice on how to start a newsletter, but broad strokes, just look at where there's an opportunity that's going to grow and then cross-reference that with stuff that you can stomach doing every day or that you find interesting enough to stick with for the long term. The monetization piece, though, that's where, like, are you thinking about it's um, working with affiliates and affiliate sales? It's also sponsors. It's also I'm going to create some of my own products and, and like my own books. Like, how do you think about that piece of it um, when we're thinking about newsletters? Yeah, I think, I mean, honestly, I know this is an answer that nobody wants to hear, but, you know, I don't, there's no one thing. And I think the best strategy is to do a bunch of different stuff try out a lot of stuff and see what works. Um, I'm thinking of all of those specifically, you know, I, I'm okay running, running ads. If the ads are in line with my newsletter, I'm fine promoting high quality affiliate stuff. I'm happy to, you know, again, create books or even maybe higher ticket courses about stuff that's relevant and promote that stuff. Um, you know, there are things that I'm not crazy about doing. I don't want to really build a, a multi-person business out of this, um, at least yet, maybe that'll change in another, another year. And that's kind of what I'm doing with my own marketing newsletters. I'm trying to change my mindset because I'm so reluctant to hire other people or to really even work on a team. So maybe I'm going to ma manage to hypnotize myself into thinking that I, I do want to work with a team or I do want to hire people. But right now I'm trying to do everything myself in terms of this newsletter. And so, you know, if I do create products, it'll be smaller products or smaller courses. But in terms of monetizing, yeah, anything anything that you've seen out there that works, you can do it too, or at least you should give it a try and see, you know, if you launch a newsletter, whether it works for your specific case. Okay, so you mentioned, or I I mentioned, I, I think maybe I started bringing it up, the, the persuasion angle, a lot of the stuff that you talk about, magic, mentalism uh I'd, I'd love to go deeper on this stuff what is it that you know about this that uh, intrigues you and what are some of the biggest lessons that you're pulling from we won't mention darren's book specifically if we're not allowed to talk about that uh, no. but you know when when you look at you know the world of magic uh or the world of cons what is it that you're finding there that you're saying ooh this is really valuable as I apply it to building my business, writing copy, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you asked because honestly, I'm writing a new book or I'm putting together the research for a new book. And it's exactly this. It's the overlap between all of these different, let's say, disciplines um, that I'm interested in. So things like magic and, and copywriting and hypnosis and, you know, door to door sales. I find that there's a lot of overlap. Um, honestly, I think that there's a lot of overlap. And on the one hand, all of these disciplines are about, let's say, controlling attention and funneling people down 
the path that you want them to go. So that's super high level, super abstract and not very useful. But I think that's ultimately what all of these disciplines have in common. And the fact that even though this is not popular, it's kind of a numbers game. So, you know, when you write copy, regardless of how good your copy is, you can send it to a targeted list and you're going to have a two to three percent response. And that's a great response, you know, and likewise, you know, magicians only can really fool the people who want to be fooled, who come to a magic show, who are there, who are paying attention to the magic. If somebody's not paying attention to the magic, if they're not paying attention to the magician, they're going to spot the trick, right? And that, that's something that I discovered um, actually, you know, via that book that shall not be named. That, that's something that shocked me that, you know, you think that if you go to a magic show uh, and if you're sitting there in the audience, if you're giving the magician your full attention, that that makes it somehow more likely that you're going to catch him in the act. And it's exactly the opposite because the magician has seen people like you a thousand times and he knows exactly the moves to make, how to position his body, what to say, so that at the right moment, something else is going to be going on in your head. And for that split second while you have a different image in your head, he can very casually just, you know, put something on, on the table that you didn't see there before. And on the other hand, if there's somebody, you know, at the, by the side who's not paying attention to the magician um, and not listening to the talk and not paying attention to his body language and to the specific things that he's doing on stage, then that person will, you know, very much notice the, the ungraceful way that the magician is performing the actual key element of his trick. So I think there are lots of interesting psychological principles. That said, I think that there's a, dozens of interesting psychological principles because I think in the same way that copywriting is really a bunch of individual techniques brought together in order to channel people and to build up desire and to provide proof and to overcome objections. And you need to really learn all of them in order to be effective. Likewise, all of these other disciplines have dozens of core techniques that they're using regularly. And now there's overlap. And if you want some specific specific overlap between these disciplines, I guess one thing that comes to mind is the idea of push and pull. So I think in it, another one of these disciplines is, you know, the pickup artist community. I think this idea of push and pull definitely comes from there. And but it's it's similar in uh, if you want to look at screenwriters do it as well, copywriters do it as well con artists do it as well. And it's basically where you tease people, right? You kind of inch them a little bit towards you and you push them away. Um, screenwriters, for example, if you look at the movie Jaws, right? The movie Jaws is teasing that stupid shark for the first 40 minutes of the movie where you don't see it, right? And it keeps having these near misses where, you know, you see the water and there's ominous music playing and there's kids who start screaming and there's a boat with a bunch of park rangers and they all have guns and you think you're finally going to see the shark and you see, you know, there's the shark's dorsal fin appear above the water and it turns out to be a couple of kids who are just teasing everybody, right? And there's multiple scenes like that for the first 40 minutes of Jaws and it's basically edging you on where you're getting a little bit of the shark because the shark does appear in some ways because you see people are getting, you know, killed, but there's no shark still, right? And it's kind of building up this tension where it's like, yeah, it's, there is real evidence of the shark and yet there's all of these false misses and false near misses, you know, and con artists do the same thing, right? So 
I'm not an expert on cons at all, but I've read a couple of books and I think the field is fascinating. And I think one of the things that con artists will do is that they work with people who, you know, are looking for, for easy money, for something, something for nothing. And basically the way that it works is that there's a buildup where, you know, the mark in the con world will get a chance to maybe win some easy money and you'll get a second chance to win some easy money. And then you'll get a third chance. But during that third chance, something is going to get in the way where he won't actually get that chance to win that money. He'll know that he could have made this huge payoff for sure. He'll be certain that it was guaranteed to him, but somebody will get in line in front of him at the betting parlor, or there will be some other way that he's prevented from actually winning that money. And the fact that he's kind of been teased at it just amplifies his desire all the more. So there are specific strategies like this that I think definitely translate to copywriting. And I think if you look at any successful financial promo, you know, um, or even any kind of supplement VSL that lasts 40 minutes and it's just teasing you endlessly on and on, and it's revealing little bits of what this magic, you know, weird ingredient from the jungles of Shangri-La is, you know, and it's revealing a little bit more and it's telling you a little bit more, but it's always leaving you on the hook and it's just building up that desire. And I guess whatever is happening in your brain with your dopamine receptors is just getting more and more blown out. Um, I think those kinds of strategies are definitely applicable across all of these disciplines. Yeah, it really sounds like dating, right? <laughs> yes, that is. The entire dating experience. Uh, could you apply this to uh, maybe an email sequence? Like I'm thinking of one of my clients and we're about to launch a program. And so is it where you tease during the pre-launch period and you're like teasing, 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 and then when cart opens, like that's the reveal or should you still kind of tease a little bit when you open the cart? Like, how do you think about that in terms of emails? I think, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think uh, you want to tease and you want to tease early and often, you know, you can, the, you can do it months in advance, you know, where you can say that there's going to be some product building up, uh, that you're going to be releasing some stuff. You can tease in terms of actually, I mean, the main thing about teasing is that there's something that you can't get, right? That could be information in terms of there's something that you're going to reveal, or it could just simply be a product that's not available yet. And so you could just build up anticipation and say, oh my God, I'm going to have this incredible product. It's so good. I've put in so much work, but it's not ready yet. Right. And you can repeatedly do that, but you can also tease the content of that product and say, oh, if you knew the trick that I have on whatever module 17 of that product, and it's a trick that I learned from, you know, Robin Kira, and we talked about it, but it's something that we couldn't reveal on the actual um, podcast. Then we cut it out and you tease people more about that. And then you know, that's going to tease the actual content. And I think the more you do that kind of stuff and the longer you do that, and honestly, the more shameless you are, the better your ultimate um, launch is going to go. And you can do that within the content of your emails where you're teasing the product or the content within the product. You can also tease the content of your future emails. I think uh, Andre Chaperone was, you know, famous for this. He had this soap opera sequence, which is basically how I got started in the copywriting world. I was offering to write soap opera sequences. And it was basically, you know, you write these multiple sequences and his thing was that you would even have a story that stretches across emails. I don't think that's necessarily a great idea because 
today people are getting, you know, so many emails that there's a good chance they're going to miss some part of your email or read it out of order or whatever. But still, if you do write a sequence, you can tease, you know, kind of diagonally across your sequence. I mean, if you lay out your emails side by side, you can find things that are interesting in your emails and think of it kind of as a um, sideways sales letter. I think that was the product launch formula idea, but basically, you know, have the emails side by side and, you know, in, in pre in earlier emails, teasing stuff that's coming up, you know, creating a little bit of a sales bullet for your future content and saying like, I'm going to tell you something, you know, I feel like a lot of people do this at the end of an email where it's like, Oh, and my, my next email, I'm going to tell you, I went from zero to hero. And I feel like it's done as kind of an afterthought and it's a little bit lazy, but I feel like it's something that you can definitely introduce into the content of your email. And, um, and put some thought and work into because it basically pre-sells your future content and keeps people reading where they might not read otherwise. And then ultimately all of that built into this snowball where it's going to just make your launch that much more, that much more successful. The thing that's interesting to me, John, as you talk about some of this stuff, um, is that um, even when it's obvious, it still works, uh, you know, it, and it's like going back to the world of magic. I, um, maybe you've written about this or, or, but like Penn and Teller have the cup and ball trick where they do it and like they're using clear cups. Like you can literally see the trick as it's happening and it still works. And I think the same thing works in copy where, you know, we don't necessarily have to hide it and be manipulative. We can basically say what we're doing. And yet like the, the, techniques that we use in persuasion still work. So, you know, we can be totally upfront about it and say, Hey, I'm going to sell you something and I'm going to show you all the people who love this. and I'm going to tell you all of the great things about it. And yet the techniques still work. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I think honestly, because I think partly it's because we, we have two brains, you know, we have the brain where we're being the critical copywriting expert, you know, who knows it all. And we're trying to be sophisticated and judging things and saying, okay, I know this stuff, but then we still have our own emotional response, you know? And if somebody comes to you and he says, you know, let's say that you're a copywriter, right? And you're a freelance copywriter. And if you have somebody with a lot of authority who says, look, I have a guaranteed way to get high paying clients uh, month after month who are going to be a joy to work with, and here's the system that I have, and here's how it's worked for a lot of other people, and here's proof, and here's a guarantee that if it doesn't work for you in the next 30 days, then I'm going to give you your money back. What can you argue with there, right? It, I feel like it's those are all the things that you want, and yet it's the most transparent copywriting persuasion stuff where you're basically promising somebody something and giving them proof, right? But if you are a copywriter looking to get five and whatever, four and five figure clients every month and somebody who you can trust comes to you and promises to bring you four and five figure clients and puts in an offer where you feel like it's actually a likelihood that this is going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, you won't lose your money. Then the fact that you know that he's basically making you a promise and providing proof, how would that, you know, hurt, um, hurt the actual effort that he's making? So I think that, this stuff works because we're human and we, you know, react to human desires and needs. And the fact that somebody's 
made a system out of it and he's made it repeatable, you know, now that we have the AIDA formula or whatever it is, then that doesn't take away from the effectiveness of this stuff in any way. Yeah. I feel like sometimes it makes it even more effective because you're like, well, this guy's done it repeatedly and like gotten people in repeatedly with this persuasion tactic. So it must really work. Uh, what are, before we move away from persuasion, um, is there one like persuasion go-to technique that you could share with us that maybe we aren't typically talking about or using? It's kind of like. John's favorite. Yeah. John's I, favorite I, secret. Like the one I, thing I, you I don't do reveal. Secret, but I'm not giving that away because I actually have a course about that. So I have a secret that I go back to in my emails over and over. And I wouldn't say it's a necessarily a favorite persuasion technique, but it's something I definitely like doing in my own emails. But in terms of otherwise, what I think, I mean, I, I guess I found Gary Bensavenga very early on in my copywriting career. And so I'm very much in that proof camp, you know, where I think that um, as much as I've, as much as I've tried to get into the um, you know, sticking in the emotional knife and twisting it, you know, the um, John Carlton, Dan Kennedy style of writing copy. I still think like proof first and foremost, including in the product itself. And, you know, that's the starting point where I'm like, okay, if you just create a, if you focus on amazing proof and if you make the work of marketing or copywriting, either creating that proof or digging up that proof, then then you then you basically solve a lot of the problems that you're going to have in your copy otherwise you know and that's what um if i have to default to anything that's what i would do and i think when i'm creating products i'm thinking proof first and so that's that would be my best recommendation but what are you thinking about proof wise that might be like kind of more advanced or just not what earlier copywriters are thinking about, right? When we think about proof, it's like, okay, I need testimonials to prove that this product works, but you might be talking about something else you're building in to the yeah. copy. I mean, I, I think that's that's a great point because I think testimonials are great. And if you overwhelm with testimonials, that can be good, but think about the stuff that would convince you, right? So again, if you are a copywriter, right? And somebody comes to you and they are promising to you know, get you four and five figure clients every month, right? And that's the promise. But what would convince you? What would be a 100% golden proof, right? Well, first of all, the authority of that person, right? So if somebody, if you guys come to somebody, right? And you tell them, yeah, we have a guaranteed way. And you guys have been around in the industry and people know you and you've interviewed everybody and you have your own communities, you know? And if if anybody knows you, that's, in many ways, an automatic sell, right? So I think that that kind of personal authority is automatic proof. Then if you have endorsement, right? If whoever is the biggest name in the industry right now, people who are, you know, if if Paris Lampropoulos comes and he says like, look, I'm not, I'm not looking for clients, but Paris Lampropoulos comes and he says, whatever these guys are selling, I looked at it and it absolutely works. You should buy it. It'll be the best, whatever, $5,000 they're selling. That's a huge amount of proof right there. And it's independent from testimonials, right? And then you can have, you know, your mechanism again, where you have some sort of sexy way that nobody's talked about, you know? So all of the stuff that, you know, um, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. Look at what other people are doing. Look at what's selling you. 
or worst case, you know, again, going back to Paris Lampropoulos's book list, go read How to Write a Good Advertisement by Vic Schwab. And there's, I think, chapter, I believe, six, where he's got 13 types of proof. Um, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel, but there is a need to think big, right? And I think a lot of people, when they think proof, they're like, well, I did provide proof. Yeah, you did provide me three testimonials, but those three testimonials are weak and they're not really from people like me. And they were, you know, they came a few years ago. When you think proof, you got to think overwhelming and you got to think dramatic. And if that's not there, then you got to think how to create it. And if you can't create it, then you got to think about, well, can we change the product, right? Can we change the offer? Can we do something in there to inject a famous name, to inject a guarantee that's crazy, to inject some sort of overwhelming certainty and, uh, and authority that, you know, isn't there right now, just with a few testimonials. And in some ways, again, this is going back to the idea that there's no one thing that you got to sort of like think a little bit about, um, there, there are different tactics and you got to put in the work to think like how you can apply these different tactics to what you're doing. So John, as, as we get close to the end of the interview, um, I'm curious what you see as the future for copywriters, you know, with the advent of AI, with your know, growing competition, people who have moved into copywriting, content writing, seeing it as a, an easy opportunity to work from home, those kinds of things. Where do you see this thing that we do going and, you know, how's it transforming over the next three or four years? Um, I think that's a great question. I, I don't really know. I think that both of those things that you say, I, I, you know, both the fact that there's been an influx of people who are interested in this field and AI as well, I think those are both relevant. At the same time, um, there are these secondary knock-on effects, you know, the fact that AI and interest in the field of copywriting and marketing just means that there are more opportunities, more businesses that you know, potentially need good people. Um, I think that there's a huge number of, you know, people who are copywriters who are not very good, right? And I think that if you do the work to get better, you know, um, to write regularly, to read those few tested books that have been around for 50 years, to listen to interviews with people who are very smart, and I'm not, you know, putting myself into this category necessarily a little bit, but, you know, like, Again, you know, you guys have this incredible resource online where you have interviews with some of the most successful and long-lasting people in this industry. And, you know, there's a lot that you can learn from that, but you have to devote yourself to doing that while at the same time hustling and actually doing the work and delivering on that work and practicing. If you don't have regular clients, then still starting your own newsletter or your own daily email list and writing regularly. So my feeling is that if you have a basic to good to great level of skills, you're not going to be wanting for work. That said, those promises of, you know, there's desperate companies out there and they're looking for somebody who can just tack on the word how to in front of whatever. And that's going to, they're going to pay you royalties for the rest of your life. I think that's definitely overblown. And, you know, it's basically, I think copywriting is a, is a, job or a career the way however you want to look at it but again if it's something that you can imagine doing five years from now then i think it can be a very 
um, fun thing to do because you get exposed, get exposed to a lot of different topics. You get better and you learn a lot. You get to write, you can get, make really good money. I don't know what I could potentially be doing that would pay me the money that I'm doing now for the work that I'm doing. You can take it in any direction that you like, but again, you have to go in with the mindset of, am I okay doing this for the next five years? And that said, you know, maybe, maybe AI is going to make, help you make, help, help make you more productive. I feel like I'm using AI for certain things and it's definitely helping me, right? There are things that used to take me 40 minutes to do that I can do now in five minutes. At the same time, I'm not using it for everything. I'm not using it for writing my daily emails. Um, and I think that there are going to be great tools. I wouldn't be worried about AI if you have skills and if you integrate AI and if you want to get better and if you want to make money and if you want to stick with this, I think you're going to be fine. On the other hand, if you're looking for, again, if you're looking for some sort of miracle to happen in this next six months and ultimately you want to retire and live on a beach in Mexico and just get paid royalties based on some one sales letter that you wrote now, after six months of getting into copywriting, then again, my advice is don't get started at all because it won't happen. Jeez, man, killing the dream. <laughs> Just I mean, I, I, one of the things that I've learned uh, via writing my own emails is um, the last, I think this is a Chris Voss thing. So again, from negotiation, that's very applicable to copywriting. And I always remember it. And he says, the last impression is the lasting impression. So there's only two things that people remember. There's like the emotional highlight of the, uh, of an experience like an interview and there's the final thing so you always want to put the final thing to be good so what i want to say is that if you have skills now or if you want to work on getting skills over the next six to eight months and it's definitely doable then this field is wide open and there's definitely demand and there's only going to be more demand because again there's those knock-on effects and the easier it is to create content to create newsletters to launch businesses the more demand there is and honestly i'm not advertising myself as a freelance copywriter anymore. And yet people are still coming to me via my list, people who are old clients who are looking for copywriters. And even though I did kind of try to kill that dream about, you know, desperate companies in need for copywriters, that actually is true. They're not in need of, you know, complete unskilled copywriters who can't tie their own shoelaces, but they're, you know, a lot of good businesses really are in need of solid copywriters. And if you can work to getting yourself up to a solid level of skills, um, and if you're willing to get out of your cocoon, whether that's a virtual cocoon where you're just inside of your own inbox, if you're willing to go and you know do a little bit of online networking or go to an event or reach out to customers somewhere, if you're going to persist with that, you're going to get work and you're going to do well over the long term. So. Thank you. Thank you, Kira. For awesome. Rob and I end on downer notes on our other podcast, the AI podcast, all the time. We end with like just a depressing whole. It's probably why nobody listens to that podcast. Who knows? We'll do listen to it. It's just we go very dark at the end of it. But um, how can people get in touch with you, reach you? It seems like you're on LinkedIn, but you're like maybe not on LinkedIn. Where do they yeah, go? I'm really, I'm really not on LinkedIn. If you want to reach me, don't reach me on LinkedIn. I have a website, uh, mylastname.com, so bayakovich.com. And um, I'm trying a strategy. And again, this is a completely transparent marketing strategy where, you know, I want to see like who listens to this interview and who liked me and who actually wants to get into my list. So I prepared a special page where people nice. can go it off. 
go to my regular homepage, but I prepared a special page. And it's my, again, my domain, bayakovich.com forward slash TCC for Copywriter Club. And if you go there, I have a little bit of an interesting article. And then I have a special something that I'm giving away. It's information, but I think if you read the article, you might find that valuable. And if you opt in through that page to my list, um, I have instructions for how I will get you that little bit of interesting information that the article will tell you about. I won't, the, I'll just tease it by saying that the title of that page is how, how copywriters can avoid ham-handed segues that get them eaten alive. So that's the title of it. And if that intrigues you, then uh, go read there and you can sign up to my newsletter via that. And then you'll start getting my daily newsletter and you can hit reply to that if you ever want to get in touch with me and, uh, and write me directly. I, I was going to segue into our outro, but uh, it, I'm sure it would be ham-handed, so I'm not going to do that now. Uh, but I will say, definitely go go to the page, sign up for John's list, because this isn't the only test you run. You talk about tests that you, you've done with newsletters. You talk about what you're doing in your business. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the lists that I read pretty religiously. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring you onto, uh, onto the podcast, John. So thank you for sharing that. And yeah, let us know, uh, how that goes. Uh, well, I mean, if we're on the list, I have a feeling we're going to hear how it goes. So well, yeah, I'm not on the there. list yet, but now I feel like I have to join the list. Yeah. Well, you, you know, the link, you know, you got, you got to go to the slash TTC link to go okay. and, uh, and find out that secret. Thanks, John. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Uh, thanks guys. This was great. Thanks for the interview. And that's the end of our interview with John Biakovich. I want to add just a couple of things to our conversations, just to give you a bit more to think about as you, you know, start to apply some of these ideas in your own business. So early on, John was talking about his experience at Motley Fool and having to figure out the system, having to to adjust his writing to, to fit the uh, the needs of the client. And he mentioned specifically, you know, having to swallow his ego. And I, I think this is a really important point, especially for a lot of us as we're starting out, we have to learn that it's about the client and it's about what they need, not your voice. Uh, you know, every project is an opportunity to learn. It's, a, it's an opportunity to get better. It's an opportunity to get a sample to add to your portfolio, but it's not an opportunity to stretch your creative muscles in ways that don't serve your clients or their customers. Readers don't want clever, they need clear, they need effective. And this is one of those lessons that sometimes we have to relearn it over and over and over in our careers. Just think like, how am I, how is my copy serving the reader and their needs, the customer that my client is trying to sell to? That is where the sweet spot and, and effectiveness happens in copy. We also talked a bit about Kindle books. Uh, you know, having a book can change your business. We've talked about this in the past, on the podcast, we've talked to a couple of book coaches, a couple of people who have ghosted books. Uh, we'll link to a couple of those episodes in the show notes if you want to check them out. But having a book helps you attract clients. The problem, though, is that most of us, as we're thinking about that, the, our temptation is to write a book about copywriting or about content writing because we know a lot about that. That's the thing that we do for our clients. And our clients actually don't want books about copy. They want to hire somebody who already knows stuff about copy and about content. What they want is information about the other problems that they have in their business, about marketing in their niche or uh, you know other problems. And so if you're going to write a book, 
with the intention of getting clients from the work that you're doing, from that book, you want to make sure that you're addressing problems, probably marketing problems, but it could be wider than that, that they have in their business that you can help them with. And yes, copy may be the way that you help them solve that problem, but you don't want to teach them how to write headlines. You don't want to teach them how to write calls to action. You are going to be doing that for them. What they need is to be thinking bigger about problems. And of course, that doesn't apply if you're selling things to copywriters. Of course, then you do want to write things for copywriters, but you want to write, not just, uh, you know, teach them all of the things, but you want to write in a way that's going to attract them into, you know, into your email or into your courses, whatever it is that you do with copywriters. So consider having a book in your business and consider listening to some of those other episodes uh, where we talk about writing a, a book. We talked a bit about John's newsletter, and I, I actually have a question for you. This isn't something that I'm, I'm adding to, but would you be interested in a training from the Copywriter Club about this topic? Not just writing email, but starting a subscription email newsletter using tools like Substack or Beehive. I think ConvertKit has some, some good tools around this. If you are, just drop me a message and let me know, rob at thecopywriterclub.com. If we get enough interest, we'll put something together. We may pull together a few experts like John to talk about what they're doing with newsletters and how they're building their audiences, uh, the types of things that they're sharing, how they're monetizing their newsletters. If that's interesting to you, just yeah, send me an email, let me know. And then finally, we talked a bit about persuasion. This is one of my favorite topics, uh, something that I just get really excited about. Uh, and we didn't just talk about that secret book by Darren Brown, which by the way, it's called Tricks of the Mind. Uh, please don't tell your A-list friends that I shared that with you. But I'm really intrigued by the crossover between copywriting and marketing and magic and misdirection and sales and hypnosis and and you know cons and all you know all there's so much to learn from each of these disciplines that applies to what we do as copywriters to help us be more persuasive. I, I used to teach a presentation about con men and how they actually would go through the con step by step. And I would talk about how that applies to what we do as marketing. And after I gave that presentation to uh, to a, a mastermind put on by Brian Kurtz, somebody who was at the mastermind came up to me afterwards and they're just like, wow, I, I feel really terrible. You know, I, I don't want to con my customers into buying things. Like I, I feel like I'm cheating them. And of course that wasn't what I was trying to say. And I actually have changed that presentation a bit. So, so I don't address it in the same way because yeah, obviously we don't want to manipulate. We're not trying to cheat people out of things. We're not trying to get people to act against their own interests, which is what con men do con people. I don't know. That's what they do. They're looking out for their interests. Of course, we're trying to look out for our clients' interests and our clients' customers' interests. And if we're doing that, if we're doing that well, then we're doing the right things. Something to consider. John mentioned how paying attention actually makes the illusion more effective. And that's actually something that's true of cons as well. In fact, you know, we often think, well, dumb people fall for these. And there are studies, actual research studies that show the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to get conned. Uh, I, I have a neighbor who's a, a doctor and he, uh, you know, was conned into investing into a, uh, a Ponzi scheme and a super smart guy put off his retirement a couple extra years because of the money that he lost. And he even said, as he was telling me about this, he's like, I, I, you know, in the back of his head, he had this inkling that he needed to be asking more questions, but it was just the opportunity was just 
too good, right? He he was going through that illusion and and was calling it. A couple of resources. If this is interesting to you at all, watch The Sting. That's a movie starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. It's fantastic. It walks through all the steps of the the con, and it's probably worth watching two or three times. Uh, it's exactly it's an illustration of, of what John was sharing with us in this interview. And then you know we talked a little bit about you know teasing things that are coming out. So just want to let you know we do have a copy course that is coming soon. It's, uh, it's the kind of thing that will help you write better. We are going to be talking about persuasion and adding a lot of elements in there about how, not only just how did you do the research or how do you write the copy, but how do you make it more persuasive? So I'm just going to throw that out there so that uh, you can think about that when it's ready. We're hoping to have it ready by the middle of October. It's taken a little longer to put together than uh, we had planned, but it should be uh, available very soon. And then finally, I just want to mention John talked a bit about the Paris Lampropolis book list. Uh, we've talked or mentioned that once or twice a long time ago on the podcast. If you want to see the list that Paris Lampropolis has recommended that all copywriters read, and he actually says you should read each of the books at least three times. Once is just to read through it so that you try to understand it. Two, the second read through, you're underlining and you're making notes in the margins. And then three, you're, you're translating the things that stand out into a notebook. But if you want that list of books that Paris recommends, you can go to the copywriterclub.com forward slash Paris and P-A-R-R-I-S, there's two R's, dash book dash list. And you'll see all of the books that Paris has recommended. We want to thank John for joining us to chat about his business. The best way to connect with him is to get on his list at bejakovic.com forward slash TCC. I'll spell that for you. B-E-J-A-K-O-V-I-C.com forward slash TCC. He does have a special offer there for anybody who's listening to the podcast. I've been on John's list for a while and I have to admit it is one of my favorites. So I highly recommend that. And you know what else? You should definitely check out the Copywriter Underground. Go to thecopywriterclub.com forward slash TCU. That's pretty easy to figure out since for the copywriter underground to join the very best community for copywriters who want to get better at this thing that we all do together. The resources there, the community there, it's an amazing, amazing value for, for what you pay. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave your review of the show. Don't miss our other podcast at AI4CreativeEntrepreneurs.com. And you can, of course, watch that on YouTube or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob. Club yeah, can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.